0: Welcome to Unraveling Pink, a podcast tackling gender bias at work. I'm Annie Rogaski. In this episode, we hear from an expert in the diversity and inclusion space, sometimes called d Jennifer Brown. Jennifer has her own consulting company and has for many years. She's seen a lot of situations. She's seen what what has worked, what hasn't worked, and she shares some of that with you all today. It was a great conversation with her, she has spent a lot of time really looking at the question of what is your diversity story. And for those of you who are listening and may feel like you don't have a diversity story, please listen all the way to the end because you do. It's just a matter of finding it and being able to articulate it, and Jennifer will help explain how to do that. There's a lot of great information in this podcast, including how millennials are changing the DNI space what leaders can do or executives can do to better relate to their teams and looking at who you are when you show up at work. So listen in. Also, you can check out Jennifer Brown's book and a number of other resources, which we'll have in the show notes. And she talks a little bit about in the podcast as well. So here's Jennifer.
1: Welcome to Unraveling Pink. This is Annie Rogowski and today I'm here with Jennifer Brown from Jennifer Brown Consulting. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Annie. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you and for those of you who don't know Jennifer, you should check out her book which came out in 2016. It's called Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace, and the Will to Change and it is a Uh, jam-packed book of ideas and challenges and data that is a great introduction or intermediate uh, read on diversity and inclusion in the workplace. So um, I've been exploring that and um, Jennifer, thank you for writing it. Oh my gosh, thank you. Uh,
2: It was a labor of love and uh, it's a (laughs) lot, it's 300 pages full of, uh, it's a download from all of the years of consulting that I've done with my team and all of the things we've learned and um, I'm hoping a a distillation of almost a toolkit for like you said, the practitioner, whether you're just starting out and you have your first diversity role and you somehow have to bring a strategy to your organization, not having done it before, which is very common, all the way to people who have been leading these kinds of functions for a long time, but need a refresh in terms of maybe some new ideas and new ways of thinking about old ideas. And then I also have been told that just general inclusion-minded people of all walks of life have enjoyed reading it in reflecting on their own, the way they are in the world, just generally, not just professionally, but also personally and in their families and in their churches and all sorts of things I hear. So it's really very gratifying to feel that there's an affordable way that I can put all of what we've learned in front of almost anyone and have it really resonate. That's great.
1: So Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about what you do when you're not writing books? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes. Um, well, I have actually been in the consulting space for over a decade and I've had my own company uh, and I've had a wonderful team over all those years that has helped us uh, deliver learning programs, whether that's training around unconscious bias or what we prefer to call inclusive behavior training, mm-hmm. uh, work, workshops um, in webinar form, in e-learning form, in um, in the classroom, which is technically where I think we were born, is really in the classroom. I mean, my background is as a, <laughs> yeah, I love the classroom. Like I'm, I mean, I grew up as a stage performer among other things. And um, how I first discovered this, the, the leadership development stage was really as a soft skills trainer before I started JVC and got our LLC, started to hire a team. Um, I was the one that was running around teaching leadership skills and time management and presentation skills and all uh, a different topic every day and really enjoyed, I'm so extroverted, enjoying meeting new people every day and trying to make it work um, amongst a group of adult learners and um, having a leadership conversation. And you know, it was through all of that soft skills delivery that I started to really form my point of view about all that is, forgive the word, but broken in, in the relationship between individuals and leaders and companies and the companies themselves. And hmm. I, just, I just couldn't shake that. You know, I, I remember being that employee that felt disconnected from my employer. I, I re, you know, that was very, very present to me. And so as I taught and taught and taught and it was in so many rooms where I ended up having the same conversations, it became very apparent to me that I wanted to really, I really wanted to take this on and have our own firm as well, not just be an internal person, but actually be a change agent from the outside. Because, I mean, we laugh, but we always say you, it's hard to be a prophet in your own land. And, you know, <laughs> so now we, we get to be the agitator and be, you know, that external voice that can, you know, that can ask the inconvenient question or can back up and validate data that Maybe nobody is listening to you about in your organization, but we can come in, and specifically, I can come in, and my team can come in, and hopefully move people along in their in their understanding and their acceptance of this discussion. Because you know, it's there's still a lot of resistance to the discussion about diversity and inclusion and why it matters, and what does it have to do with me? And what if my company's doing great and we're growing and really there's not a problem? And you know, it's it's like the greatest hits of resistance that I here <laughs> and so uh, yeah so it's really a great role for us to have and um, we like to we like to use our voice as an external in, and, and I think it's a great fit for me and for my
1: team. That's great it's I think it's so important to have an external expert come in because so often companies are mired in what's normal for them and sometimes it's hard to see what needs to change. It's so true. It's very, very true. And I think they, we also bring an
2: insight into what other companies are doing. And I find that that's one of the, yeah, that's one of the best change drivers is to be, that's why we all need to go to conferences a lot because we need to know how other companies in our industry, like peer companies, are doing this differently. And hopefully they put a model out there and set the bar. And then that gives us something to shoot for. Um, because we want to stay competitive, you know, but then it's also even without you uh, outside of your industry. Some industries are really behind in general. So benchmarking against your industry peers doesn't really make sense because nobody's doing anything well. And if you're in that situation, <laughs> it's true. So if you're in that situation, then I, then I recommend you really look at best-in-class companies, right? That you, you look at adjacent industries. You look at much bigger peers, for example. You look at more multinational global companies that are in your space. You know, so I think it's all, it is all about, and it's very persuasive to be armed with that because I'll tell you, senior leaders in particular who are controlling the purse strings do not like being left behind. And they don't like not having a good story to brag about. (laughs) The business case is truly, how do we not fall behind? How do we, um, how do we compete in the war for talent and particularly diverse talent? How do we bring better products and services to market, to a diversifying market and world? And, you know, how are we going to become an employee of of choice and, and differentiate ourselves and, And maybe the opportunity is to differentiate around our message around inclusion. And I, I often suggest that, you know, you don't have to shout it from the rooftops, but I honestly think the brands that are doing that are getting handsomely rewarded right now in the talent war and also in the marketplace.
1: Right. Yes. well, I came from a profession that was, um, very far behind others. <laughs> I, I, I'm in the legal profession and I used oh, to in law firms. Oh, yeah. goodness. Yeah. and I would go to these events with that were not legal focused and realize, wow, people do things completely completely differently and they would hear about what it's like in a law firm and think that we were in the dark ages so there's certainly something to uh, reaching out to other industries
2: that's right yeah Um, I wouldn't I would not benchmark in the legal industry as a firm I would I I definitely would say I mean I would but I wouldn't stop there I would definitely
1: look outside of it yeah yeah Well, you mentioned something about feeling disconnected from your employer, and one of the things that I seem to be seeing more of these days with the millennials in the workplace that I didn't experience as much, I'm Gen X, um, when we were in the workplace, we didn't really have an expectation of needing to feel connected to our employers, I think we were ready to just suffer through to have a job, but I'm excited about what I see happening as a push from the millennial generations where they really do seem more uh, interested in being connected to the workplace and being connected with each other. Is that what you're seeing as well? Or what are some of the uh, nuances of, of the connection to the employer that you're seeing these days?
0: Yeah,
2: you're absolutely right. I being Gen X too, we were the disaffected generation, right? We were like, whether it's the latchkey kids or you know, the, the kids who saw the divorce rate spike for our parents or who had our working moms in the workforce breaking through the glass ceiling and, and having a tremendously difficult time doing that. And I think our our trust in institutions, I believe we were sort of the first generation to really feel disappointed and not not seen and heard and valued and, and watched malfeasance on a broad scale. Um, And so I think that cynicism and that independent streak is a hallmark of our generation. And so, of course, we, that coupled with the fact that we're a very small generation, you know, we're half the size of the baby boom and half the size of millennials. So, you know, we, I think we didn't have the, or the generational might and heft and, I think com- combined with our cynicism, probably we gave up before we even started <laughs> in terms yeah. of, of connecting with our employer. It's like, it's almost like it just wasn't possible and it didn't occur to us. All of these things, I think are, you know, they make us an amazing generation, of course, you know, we're, we're 80s children. <laughs> of course, I'm going to say like we were the best, uh, Michael Jackson, you know, enough said, but, um, <laughs> But I do, I, like you said, I really, I've, I'm so hopeful for what millennials who are now or very soon going to be the majority in every employer. You know, we, we had the number mm-hmm. out there, I think for 2025 millennials were going to be the majority or, you know, depended which wow. study you looked at, but in many companies, they're already the majority, meaning 35 and under and mm-hmm. stepping into leadership roles for the first time. Oftentimes you know managing people older than them and older generations than them um very i think assertive in terms of their career path and very assertive around inclusion Uh, more than than we ever were because you know they were raised in households that were where diversity was really celebrated you know it wasn't about Mm. maybe so much assimilation or you know just put up with it you know pay the price you need to pay to get through what you need to get through they're coming in, they want to be seen and heard for all of who they are. And, you know, all of their intersectionality, you know, if you think this generation is, has really led the way, I think, to the fact that we have like 60 gender descriptors on Facebook.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, you know,
2: because this generation was never, it was never accurate to describe our identity in terms of a binary, you know, I'm trans or I'm cisgender. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a continuum of identity. And they have a much more nuanced way of talking about identity, and I have piggybacked on a lot of that to enter the conversation, even, even in my ad- advanced age as a Gen Xer. You know, <laughs> I, feel, I feel I'm like carrying that message around, we all have a diversity story to share. We have so many facets. We have visible and invisible diversity in us. So if you look at me and you think I'm a woman of color, you know, great, but... There's so much more to my story and you may be actually making the wrong assumptions about who I am. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you more about who I am because I expect to bring that into the workplace with me. And so I, I celebrate that and the fact that they have the voice, they have the numbers on their side. They've got, they've been raised to expect diverse companies and diverse employers that value and walk the talk, Like not just go for the PR of inclusion, but really, but really walk the top from leadership on down. And these, remember this is the generation that, I mean, we laugh about it, but hey, I wanna know the CEO, you know, I wanna be on first uh-huh. new, you know, basis <laughs> with, with who our leadership is, you know, and I, I always say, I think these are all the things that we all wanted in the older generation, but we just didn't have the guts and the numbers and the language to demand it. And thank God a generation is coming in. What I hope though, doesn't happen, I think there's like a flip side to this, which is I worry too that millennials, um, because of the assumption of inclusion, that they are going to exactly that, assume that it's being taken care of right that it's kind of baked into mm. the dna of the company and there is as you and i know there's nothing further from the truth <laughs> than that right. we have so much work to do we have to step forward we have to be active we have to you continue to use our voice and i think the wake up call of the last you know year or two since the election particularly has kind of been a wake up call for a lot of folks who are, are believe in equality but kind of assumed like myself included that we're sort of marching along this path and that progress was preordained and that, you know, that beautiful rug that's in the Oval Office when Obama was there that said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm. I think a lot of us have, have had some, have had some serious doubts to that belief be introduced in the last year and a half. And so more than ever, companies, when you think about the fact that millennials dominate your workforce, number one, number two, they value and expect a walking the talk on inclusion and that progress is not preordained, that it is not guaranteed. And in fact, in fact, if you don't fight for what you have, you can actually slide backwards. Your leadership as it stands today in your company could be very different tomorrow. You could get acquired by another kind of company and have a, have a rollback. Of a lot of the things that we've assumed are kind of rolling in companies when it comes to DNI infrastructure. So, you know, I think this is a time when we take nothing for granted, but I, I don't, I just want to make sure, like the one disturbing statistic in my book, um, which is if you ask millennial men and millennial women the same question around do women have equal opportunity to be successful and have equal access to opportunities, et cetera, in the workplace women will answer that question very differently than men. And this is true for millennial men as well. So if they're assuming women feel like it's gangbusters and we have equal opportunity and everything's great and peachy, I fear they're not going to use their voice to the extent that they need to. So in in what's going to really matter, you and I talked about this, is the voice particularly of men on behalf of gender equality and parity. And, you know, so I just hope the younger men don 't assume that this is kind of a of course you know that should be happening
1: so interesting what you said about basically millennial men not being complacent and even leadership not being complacent because I think that vigilance about moving things forward is so critical. I think our generation of women really fell down on that, like we came into the workplace our, our the generation ahead of us had already established that we deserve to be there. And I think we didn't have the the vision to see that that wasn't the only piece. We had to chart a course to leadership as well. And so we all got in the workplace and we stayed in the lower ranks for so long. And I think if we had been more vigilant at that point and recognized, okay, we're here now, but we have to work to ensure we have a place in the leadership team, we'd be in a very different place today than we are Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see mm-hmm. that same parallel here with the millennials because I've heard a lot of um, different views that, that the millennial men in particular are very inclusive uh, across diverse traits, but then I've also been hearing more, more regularly your concern that if, it's, if it is just an assumption that it's happening, or that it's there or that we're done then there isn't going to be as much of a push to make sure that it stays there or that it grows. Um, so I think it's a really good kind of call to action to millennials to stay vigilant and not let this kind of tap out where we are here but continue to grow um, and become more diverse and inclusive.
2: Yeah it's a really good point and if I could add They're also holding the space, they need to hold the space for intersectional diversity as well. So um, they need to really, I think they have the opportunity to teach the rest of us about all the layers of diversity and that we're not, we haven't just arrived if we, for example, are just focusing on gender, you know, that's not just gender equality Mm -hmm. for white women, it's gender equality for women of color, which is slightly or very different, you know, depending on Mm -hmm. how you look at stereotypes and biases that impact women of color in particular. So we also can't rest in terms of, I, I think having like superficial metrics and we need to, it's sort of, just because I get through the net doesn't mean that I'm, I, now I need to just, that just means I need to shift my focus and bring others through the net. Mm-hmm. And so I think the the nuance of that discussion is also what I'm really, really excited to have. And, and we're all coming to understand these things. I think that, you know, the women's March, for example, last year being very dominated by white women was a, was a big, mm-hmm. was a big wake up call for women who consider themselves feminists. And, right. but you know, but are you an intersectional feminist? Like have you given attention to learning that, women are not a monolith, but there's all sorts of different experiences being, you know, for women with a disability, for queer women, for immigrant women. Um, so I do think, too, that the, we're deep, I'm deepening my language all the time, and I'm working really, really hard to do that. And I do think the older generations, and, and the taught by, I'm hoping, the younger generation, which I think is more comfortable speaking about these multiple layers, um, I, I really hope that we all kind of up our game in terms of how we talk about this, and truly how inclusive we are, right? Of seeing what we say the diversity within the diversity, and um, right. that's a more that's a more sophisticated conversation. But you know, I welcome that because this is not a simple thing. <laughs> it is, but it's not. No, it's not.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I like that, uh, the way you said that, because I think there's so much that the older generations can learn from the millennials and the generation coming after them, just in terms of their comfort with a variety of, of people. And um, the older generations haven't had as much experience talking about that in public or in workplaces. So that's so great. That's right. One thing that you mentioned a couple of times that I'd like to come back to in a little bit more depth is, is that we all have our own diversity story or we come to the workplace with our own identity. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on a little bit more about what that means. And then how does that play out in the workplace?
2: Yeah, I, I have been thinking a lot about this. So when I'm keynoting these days, I always you know, I show that we, when we say diversity, we mean beyond race and gender. We've, we've got, we've have to have it mean that, because that's not obviously the only story that's going on for people. Um, and then I welcome, for example, you know, white people, men, white men, uh, cisgender colleagues to think about their diversity story because they have one too, and that's a very provocative statement. I think it's unexpected. Um, I know because people respond. <laughs> I can feel the <laughs> I can feel the room kind of be uncomfortable, but very curious and almost many people for the first time feeling seen and heard in the whole DNI discussion. Hmm. And so that's why I've been pursuing this because you know we we've got to be inclusive in our approach. And maybe it was an aha moment for me. And again, I think this this started with the election and kind of things that we learned about who felt they had a voice and didn't have a voice, who felt included and not in the economic opportunity of our country. That I think a lot of us lost sight of, never had sight of, for example. Um, and then it, and then just meeting so many people in corporate America who would be sitting on the sidelines saying, "Well, I don't. This is not my issue." I, I I don't really need to do the work around diversity inclusion because I don't, that's not my story. And Mm -hmm. it just took some people, not that many, but I think there's a lot around us. We just don't see them and all of who they are coming up to me and saying, you know, here's my story. And having that be a white man who's sharing his story with me or seeing somebody bravely share that they are, you know, they're religious background is different than the rest of their executive colleagues, or that they're progressive amongst a conservative management team, or they, um, they're lacking some, you know, basic education that people assume they have in order to have a role that they have. People who are hiding other things like they're, maybe they have a PhD and they don't talk about that because they don't want to alienate people. Maybe they, you know, they are, they grew up all over the world and were kind of a a global kid, you know, but, and so they have this tremendous understanding of, of diversity on a level that even I don't have, and I'm, in, I'm a practitioner in the work mm-hmm. and, and, uh, or they grew up socioeconomically very poor. And so, or, you know, they have a kid with a disability or their wife or partner, or they're gay, or they have a partner of a different ethnicity than them. And they have mixed children and they have all sorts of interesting challenges that happen as a result of that. So you just can go on and on and on. And the question I, when I heard these stories, they were shared with me in private. And I'm thinking to myself, what good does it do for, I can carry these stories through my audiences because I know they're out there, but, but it's such a missed opportunity for people to be seen. And in most importantly, A, not to hide parts of who you are because you think it's irrelevant and it doesn't matter because it really does matter to someone and it probably matters to a lot of people actually to see to see more of who you are but but i feel a lot of people are hiding out and a lot of people are making the safe choice and a lot of people particularly in executive leadership when you think about that that image of what does an executive leader look like it's a very sanitized picture that mm. people present and Frankly, the, the, the guardrails for male executives in particular to show more for they, I mean, they're in a very strict expectation of masculinity and kind of what we think about as a leader too. So you've got these gender expectations, (laughs) then you've got executive expectations and, you know, so you're, you don't have a lot of wiggle room to really bring more of yourself actually to that. And then you've got all the risk and all the people telling you that you can't talk about it. Like and Mm there's so there's just a lot of fear, there's a lot of hesitation when it's disclosing things that people feel are vulnerable, they're also going to very much hesitate to do that. There's so much more to everyone and I just want that to be more known because I, I think A for our own healing, you know, when we carry around something that's shameful and we don't talk about that and we bury it. It's, you know, Vivian Ming, who was my very first guest on my podcast. She's a transgender scientist. And she says, it's like the tax on being different. And we're paying that mm-hmm. tax all the time. And after a while, it, it adds up. And she's actually quantified it with her research when she studied, like, you know, Joe's career trajectory versus Jose's career trajectory. Same exact mm-hmm. background. But Jose has to spend like half a million dollars more on advanced degrees and has to be in this job for that many years longer before they get a promotion because all of the bias that happens to Jose. And, but it's all also the tax we pay in terms of our own feeling whole. And I know this as an LGBT person who's really fought to kind of integrate all the pieces of who I am, you know, and bring them into the picture. And the pain that I know is just in the, the queer community around being like fully who we are, bringing our full selves to work, speaking from that place, leading from that place, and how, how fulfilling it feels to, to be working from that place where I, you know, I'm not kind of managing the fact that I'm like bifurcating my identity or I'm hiding it and I'm putting attention towards it and I have angst about it and, you know, that adds up over time and it really impacts our, our health and our performance, right? But it impacts our organizations when we leave because we haven't been seen and heard. And I think it's so important that we need to meet our organizations halfway. And we, we have to bring our, more of our full selves. We have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable every day. And we've got to know that that, that transparency is so inspiring in ways for others that are watching you that are basically seeing you make decisions and saying, well, if they're doing it and it's safe for them to do it, that means I can do it as well. And that, I think will that, if if we can create more of that, then I think we're gonna have a lot more, more especially maybe younger talent looking upwards and saying, these are people I wanna work for, and this is a company I wanna stay at because I feel like my leadership is allowing themselves to be seen as, All of who they are and right now I I don't think anyone is not a lot of people are seeing that.
1: As you were talking I was thinking this is great if people share more of themselves because so much of creating a workplace that people want to be a part of is how you interact and connect with each other and the more you see people for who they truly are the more you can connect the more opportunities you have to identify similarities between your experiences but then as you were talking, I was thinking, wow, that sounds pretty painful for people to come forward with their stories. But then uh, you, you raised two things that I think are really important for people to think about would, in terms of coming forward with your stories, one of which is the tax on yourself of showing up as not who you are at work that does have a huge uh, energy drain and, and tax on you. But then also the impact on the company. Like losing talent, I mean, that is, is an expensive tax. Mm-hmm. And if you don't feel connected with your company, you're right. You pick up the phone when, when a recruiter calls you. I mean, leaders go through all this training of how can you show more vulnerability so that your your team sees you as a person and can connect with you. And And vulnerability has been shown to be a really useful tool. And this seems like a perfect way to to hit a lot of boxes at the same time. You, you show that you're human, you connect <laughs> mm-hmm. with other people, people mm-hmm. get inspired to stay, and you get to show up at work and not hide something that, that takes a lot of time and energy to hide.
2: I know, it so seems, so, it seems obvious,
1: right. but yeah you, just, yeah, you just laid out very crisply the why
2: for this and, and the fact that it does check a lot of boxes. Like to me, it's a very, it's the shortest journey between mm-hmm. point A and point B Um, And to make it about inclusiveness happens to be Mm -hmm. kind of the hot, very resonant uh, behavior that the, you know, the majority of your workforce now or soon to be majority really, really is looking for. If we can take vulnerability around a personal struggle, challenge, something people don't know about you and make and turn that into a storytelling vehicle that actually imparts a lesson around inclusiveness and shows people, hey, it's safe to do this, I'm going to go first, and and mm-hmm. um, here's why I'm doing it, because we want to build a culture of inclusion, and this is me going first, and I often say, the leader needs to go first, right, it's, it's you can't just sit on the sidelines and support, you know, I think, you know, you've got to do your work. And I would argue when you're a leader, some people would say maybe it's more risky to be vulnerable. I think, I actually think it's kind of less risky because, you know, when you've cemented your reputation and you have the influence and you've got the title and you have the voice in the platform, that is specifically when you should be doing this. You know, you, you can't expect the queer women of color to be the ones that are always using their voice for change. You know, I think right. we talk a lot about the undue burden that's placed on those of us who are who actually are also underrepresented. So it's it's relatively more risky and it takes more courage, but it's it's really more risky for for people of diverse identities to do this work. And yet I feel like our DNI strategies have focused so much on supporting diverse talent to use their voice, right? And to come together Mm -hmm. in diversity networks and to step forward and, you know, lead this um, special commission or council. I'm looking, yes, like that's all good and really important, but I just feel like it lets so many other people off the hook and, and really what we need to be doing is talking about this as a general leadership competency across the board and not overburdening one group of people with doing the work and underburdening another.
1: Right. Yeah. And seeing your leaders, uh, be vulnerable and emphasize diversity and inclusion, it sets the tone for the company and it makes it okay and expected for everyone else to step up and do their part. So I agree with you that there's less risk and there's more value to it too. Absolutely. Well, I know that we're running out of time. So I'm hoping that we have a few more minutes to um, have a challenge from you to our listeners of something that they could do tomorrow when they go into work to even the playing field?
2: Mm, that's a great question because I think that not to be overwhelmed by this and to really make it very simple. Um, I'd say if you feel yourself pulling away from conversations because you feel like, who knows, maybe your company is in the midst of a kind of me too panic. <laughs> Um, Mm. it's, it's, it's possible, you know, it's happening um, in a lot of workplaces and there's a lot of serious conversation going on. The first instinct can be to retreat from each other and to play it safe. And I've been really disturbed to hear, I think Sheryl Sandberg was talking about it in a conference I was at last week around um, male mentors in particular, kind of pulling away from Mentoring women or being in one-on-one scenarios with women, given what's going on in the national mm-hmm. conversation, and it's um, it's heartbreaking because it's not the direction we need things to go. I think that if you are an ally and you view yourself as needing to, you know, step up and become more proactive now more than ever, to not give in to fear about difference and not play play it safe, which means in many cases to kind of disconnect. But I think this is the time to be actually leaning in to being an ally and an advocate. I think I would, I would think about your own intersectional identity in all of the diversity dimensions that you are. And for me, if I'm LGBT and I'm a woman, but I'm also a white person, I'm also an able-bodied person, I'm also um, socioeconomically very privileged when I'm um, thinking, who can I be an ally for? And who can, what conversations can I put myself in where I can learn enough to knowing at least enough, because I will never be able to walk in other shoes, but I can learn enough to represent particular issues and challenges in the voice of others. If I happen to be in a room where I have access to, you know, important people with decision-making ability and they don't. And so I think that, I would tell um, our listeners to think about all the aspects of your identity. Think about what your, you know, how would you identify advantages that you might have stemming from some of those and also where you may need support actually on the part of an advocate or somebody who can speak up on your behalf or help you with something or share their social capital with you. So I would, I would tell everybody that we all have a combination of all these things in us, you know, everybody has a diversity story and multiple stories, I think. So commit to maybe asking for allyship and support where you need it because you feel it's more risky for you to ask for something or, or um, exhibit a behavior and, and you need someone to kind of hold that space for you and also protect you and speak for you, with you, beside you. And then also revisit, are you doing enough as an advocate for others along some diversity dimensions where you have a relatively easier time or less risk doing so? And I would commit to an action on both sides. And then if you feel like you have no idea, you feel like you're so privileged that you can't relate to any of this, which is Mm -hmm. an unusual person, but sometimes people come up to me and say, Jennifer, I'm still struggling with what my diversity story is. Focus on using your, your social capital, your organizational capital, your voice for you know, one other person. And um, I love the reverse mentoring programs I'm seeing kind of pop up. So I also think you can offer to be a reverse mentor to someone, you know, offer to be somebody who can teach from your own experience, as I can tell you. There are so many people that are wondering what to do and what are the issues and how can I be helpful and not knowing where to start. That if you have, if you have an alternate experience that you can draw from and you can bring leaders along with you, um, you might want to also identify someone that you can approach and offer that to.
1: I love your challenge. I think that the, the two things that I would want to highlight from that one is that this idea of reverse mentors that you probably have someone in your company who is different from you on one of the ways that you identify. Um, and talking with that person would enable you both to share perspectives and learn more about each other. And then the other piece that, that struck me that I've not heard anyone say, and I think it's fantastic, is especially for the people who are worried about the Me Too environment and you know I, I can't be a man talking alone to a woman. Um, to to approach that as I'd like to learn more about you or about the situation or about your experience and taking the opportunity to ask questions and to listen and to learn is one of the lowest risk actions I think you could take in this environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And the bonus added bonus is that you'll actually learn something about the person that you're talking with, her experience, Um, but also maybe a little bit more about the gender experience. So great challenge. I hope our listeners take that up this week and uh, report back what they experience. Yes,
2: well summed. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been a great conversation. I could talk to you for probably about five more hours, but I don't have that time. So thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today.
2: Thank you, Annie. And um, just if anybody wants to look up Uh, our book called Inclusion. It's on Amazon. Um, The Will to Change is uh, my podcast. I have a lot of really interesting leaders on who are doing a lot of what we've talked about today. And um, yeah, and just stay in touch with us and all social media. I'm a, I'm a rabid Twitter and Instagram user. And, um, you know, I'd love to connect with anyone and and, um, broaden our community of change agents. So thanks for this opportunity. Absolutely.
1: That sounds great. And we'll put all of your information and ways to reach you and read your material in our show notes. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Jennifer. That was such a great conversation. I learned so much from you. And I think there's a lot of great information that our listeners can take back into the workplace and put into action tomorrow. I particularly like the challenge. I think that we Should be thinking about our own diversity stories. We should be thinking about how we can empathize with those around us who might have similar or different diversity stories. But each of us has some aspect of ourselves that we can draw from to better understand the experiences of people who are different than we are. So I hope you take Jennifer's challenge on, and if you do, of course. Feel free to share your experience on Twitter, tagging at Unraveling Pink, or shoot me a note on unravelingpink.com slash contact. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard and want to rate us or review us on the platform on which you listen, that would be great. We appreciate all of the reviews and ratings. And if you want to share this episode with a friend, please reach out and tell someone about it that will help grow our listenership and increase the number of people who hear Jennifer's messages. Together, we can unravel the pink bandana.